Psalm 90 is the first psalm in the fourth division of the Psalter. Perhaps that doesn't seem significant to you, but it is purposeful. The Lord put it there on purpose. And it seems, based on Psalm 89, based on the man who's written this psalm, and its context within the Psalter as a whole, that it is intended as a prayer of intercession, a prayer of intercession by that mediator, Moses, for a people who are wandering in a barren world, a nation of rebels, a nation led by covenant breakers. We don't know exactly the timing of when Moses wrote this psalm, But based on the fact that it's the only one attributed to him, we may take it as kind of a summation of his life's work of intercession. And if you remember that one event that seemed to shadow all of his remaining life in Numbers 20, when at Meribah the people rebelled, grumbled against the Lord, And God commanded Moses to take his staff and go and speak to the rock, that water may pour forth from it. As you may well recall, Moses did something different. Moses went to the rock and instead of speaking to the rock, he instead shouted to the people, Do you want to know, you rebels? That God is the Lord. And he took his staff and he struck the rock. Not once as if it were an accident, but twice. And God said to him and to Aaron, Because you have dishonored my name and not upheld me as holy in the sight of the people, you will not enter the promised land. A bit of a sour ending for Moses And yet in the midst of all of this, he remains the intercessor of his people and prays this prayer. The Psalms have different titles. Some of them are called by various liturgical names. Some are called Psalms. Some are called hymns. Some are called prayers. This one is called a prayer of Moses, the man of God. I always like to remind congregations when I preach on the Psalms, but these titles are inspired. These titles are there in the original texts, and so are there for our instruction. And that this prayer is by Moses, and that he is called the man of God, is indeed instructive, as we will see. The title of the sermon this morning is, God Our Refuge. So let us now read in Psalm 90 of God, our refuge. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return, man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you. 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us ask and pray for his blessing. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strengthen your servant. Apply it to our hearts, we pray, in your Holy Spirit's power, in the precious and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said, the title of today's sermon is God, Our Refuge. This prayer of Moses is a prayer of intercession for his people, for the people of God. The people of God who are wandering in a world that amounts to little more than a barren wilderness. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in this situation? Where these rebels you're leading just again and again complain and are condemned to die. How many bodies did Moses bury in the wilderness? How many people perished because they complained and rebelled? and did not believe how many times did they see this world in view of the promises God had made to them and say where is the promise of his coming how many times did Moses have to remind them that God was still in control that God was the true mediator how many times and while the world may look upon this world and call her Mother Nature and praise her beauty and put their faith in the bounty of earth, the security got by its resources, this prospect of setting up some monument here, the children of God who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good cannot possibly be so naive. With the poet, we see this world for what it is. A beautiful lady without mercy. It is a veil of tears, of torment, of sweat and toil and pain. A world where nothing is guaranteed, nothing endures. And we, God's children, sojourn, alone and palely loitering. Though the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. If that weren't bad enough... The world, being a barren wilderness, we're a nation of rebels. That's the church. A nation of rebels who go astray, who rush to evil. If we were to examine ourselves closely, to seek out those secret sins, we would be more shocked, I think, than we are apt to admit. We are a nation of rebels. Moses was not wrong when he called them rebels. Although he was wrong, to dishonor the name of the Lord by his conduct. And that's the last issue. The leaders are covenant breakers too. There isn't a single one called to the office of minister who does not break God's covenant. And so we're left in the wilderness, wandering, wondering, where's our home? Where's the promise of his coming? Where's my refuge? Where can I go for security, for safety, for hope? This prayer of Moses shows us our refuge, our God, 
He is our refuge. Look with me at verses 1 through 6. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is an everlasting God. An everlasting God, and therefore, an everlasting refuge. I just want to direct our attention, as Moses does, to who this God is. To this everlasting God. What does Moses do? He goes all the way back to the beginning. He directs our gaze, not only on creation, but before creation. Before the mountains were brought forth. Elsewhere in scripture, it speaks of God giving birth to the mountains. He created all things, and therefore, he is greater. He is uncreated. And that means that he's completely independent. He is utterly and totally independent from his creation. It even says of Christ in Colossians that in him all things hold together. All created things hold together. That's the power of an everlasting God. And not only that, not only that, being everlasting before the mountains were brought forth, this God, our refuge, stands in stark contrast to all other refuges. Those mountains back there had a start, and they will have an end. Christ says that we could possess faith to toss those mountains into the sea. And if we of little faith could toss mountains into the sea, what does he possess who put them in their place? What power does he possess? And if they will perish, he remains. This God who is from everlasting to everlasting is eternal. He is without beginning, without end, without succession. We put our trust in our homes, and when we finally pay them off, it's a great victory. But a fire may take those homes away. Or we may be displaced by some disaster or persecution. This wilderness has no guarantees. None. Because all these things had a beginning, and they'll have an end. But God who is everlasting, has no end. To say he's eternal is not to say he's constant within time, as though everywhere we go at every time we can find him there. No, he's more than that. He exists outside of time, of the sun, he says in Psalm 102.26, they will perish, but you remain infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth. This is a God who is uncreated and eternal and as such is an eternal and uncreated refuge. And finally, finally on that point, being uncreated and eternal, he is spiritual. He's spiritual and that means he is categorically other. He is not like us. He is not like this rapidly fading material world. This refuge is not like any other refuge you find in this world. Not like any other man that is in this world. Not like any other space or home or idea or feeling. God is greater. To say he is spirit is to say that he exists outside of space. Time, space, matter, all these things are his building blocks. I, I just want to give you the picture of his power here. Everlasting to everlasting means something profoundly and perfectly powerful, omnipotent. Time, space, and matter are his building blocks, not of plastic or wood, 
They're the kind of building blocks you make out of oh, something as fundamental as nothing. Nothing. If God can do that. What can't he do? If God can make something out of nothing, can he not create faith and peace and holiness where there is none? This God, we must mount, Calvin says, above earth, yea, even heaven itself, whenever we think upon him. In contrast, read with me verses 3 through 6. You return man to dust. Here's the power of God at work. You return man to dust. All his boasting, all his folly, all his wisdom, all his strength. Just dust. You return man to dust. And say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. There's that issue of time again. A divine perspective on time, if you will. God is outside of it. It passes like that. So much so that man is described as being like a dream. You ever had a dream, kids? You ever had a dream where something strange was happening? Maybe something interesting? Maybe a big feast? Maybe you're trying to eat all this food? And then you wake up and it's gone. Just poof. Or maybe a dream where you're trapped in the grocery store and mommy and daddy aren't there and you're frightened and you're afraid and you're scared and you don't know what to do and you wake up but mommy and daddy are in the other room. They're still there. It was just a dream. That dream, children, is what we are like all our lives. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all that. Years and years and years, poof, a dream. Not God. Not our refuge. He remains. Age to age. We are quite different from the Lord. Now, in every message in Scripture... There is a use for us. And in these high and lofty doctrines of God's power, we may wonder, what use is that to me today? We may think, how can I possibly wrap my hands around that and digest that? But that's the point of this particular part of the psalm. You can't. You can't digest understand, comprehend God. We can see him. We can know him. We can know him in a way that is saving. But we can never wrap our arms around him. He's too big. He's too great. He's too powerful. And so that should inspire our reverence, our deepest reverence for him who is greater than us greater than all the aggregate humanity that has ever lived or ever will live. Reverence, stand in awe of this everlasting God. Our awesome God, our awesome refuge is incomprehensible and to be revered. His power put mountains in their place and removes us from ours. His wrath against our sin is everlasting. And as fearful as he is, he who has neither beginning nor end knows best how to shift all things for his good and our glory. A thousand generations of mankind have not wearied him or aged him a single day. Isn't he so alien, so high, so majestic? that the faintest glimpse of him made the face of Moses shine with such a paralyzing brilliance that he had to cover his face when he spoke to the people of Israel. Isaiah, who worshipped the Lord faithfully, the moment he reckons with the fact that he's standing before the throne of the Almighty God, unveiled, he begins to disintegrate. 
holy men fall before him. The best of men fall before him. And who are we? Who are we? Can we stand before him? Can such a God so different, so other than us, be our refuge? What are we but worms? We're not even worth that. Worms don't sin. But we, the children who are called by his name, are a nation of rebels. And so, in the second place this morning, we have much to fear from this God who is called our refuge. We have much to fear from this God who is called our refuge. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger. And by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Amazing. We can't even see to the bottom of ourselves. And there are sins that we hold secret and dear in our hearts. And protect against all light of day. Fearful that God would possibly see. Oh, but he does see. He sees to the bottom. He knows. He knows what we love. He knows our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. His wrath indeed against our sin is fearful. And that is because he will not leave our sin hidden. You have set our iniquities before you. Now just think of that in the context of Moses and Isaiah, these holy men standing before the living God and crumbling. All that righteousness and holiness and good deeds and worship and Sabbath keeping and not murdering and loving their neighbor, all of that crumbled because at the very bottom there was unholiness, secret sins that we can never get to, that are down there, that crush us like, like a black hole into which light can't escape. God takes those sins and sets them before his throne room and says, this will not stand. I will not let this go unpunished. I cannot. How can the holy God leave sin unpunished? Would we want him to leave sin unpunished? Where's justice then? What point is mercy then? He will not leave our sin hidden nor our sin unpunished. <laughs> Moses, this leader of Israel, this intercessor, disqualified from entering the promised land. His secret sin had come out. Seemingly at the very end, it was at the end of their wilderness wandering that his secret sin came out. Anger. I'm so sick of these people. I'm so sick of it. And he dishonored the Lord's name in front of them. He disobeyed the Lord. Disqualified now to die before he entered the land of Israel. Like Aaron, stripped of his robes, left naked to die on Mount Hor before entering the promised land. A devastating picture. That is what sin does. That is the horror of sin. That is the terror of the wrath of God. And at this point, the question becomes, who will lead God's people into the promised land, if not Moses? Who will stand as God's spokesman? No, his representative before this stiff-necked and rebellious people. Who could possibly replace Moses, the lawgiver, the intercessor? Who will intercede for Israel before the everlasting and almighty God? But secondly then, let's, before we get ahead of ourselves, look at verses 9 and 10. Because our sin has another effect. Verses 9 and 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. 
We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. I don't know what you came here to hear this morning, but this is some pretty depressing stuff. This is pretty, har- this is pretty harrowing. Because our sin not only condemns us before Almighty God, but it makes this life, which for those who hate God, ought to be some kind of respite and some help. It makes it a misery. It makes it toil and trouble. And the days that were supposed to be filled with feasting and drinking and laughter disappear into the night of gloom and sorrow. But for the people of Israel, this trial is not simply a curse. It is a test. Like the Canaanite woman who came before Christ and begged that he would cast out the demon from, his, from her daughter. He tested her faith too. And in the end said, O woman, great is your faith. This wilderness journey is a test for a nation of rebels. It is a test for covenant breakers. God is disciplining his children. His children. <laughs> what does the author of Hebrews say? God disciplines every son whom he loves. And so what should this cause us to be? With our days passing away in a wearisome world, with the threatenings of God's wrath ever before us and the secret sins that we cannot escape, What should this do to us? Answer, it ought to humble us. It ought to humble us into the dust. Better to be humble to the dust now before we hear the everlasting God say, return, O children of man. Better to be humbled now because all boasting in the flesh is folly and, James says, evil. It avails us nothing because our hidden sins will one day come out. Ecclesiastes says that the end, God will judge every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the end of all things. And in the end, we will either face the wrath of God or, or, We will take refuge in him. But maybe you're wondering, in the midst of this heavy, heavy stuff, who considers the power of his anger? Who considers the power of his anger? When we go home from here, are we eager to forget? Isn't it easy to forget? Don't we have to be reminded? Isn't that one of the principal things God calls us to do? Remember, 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 because we forget. No one considers the power of God's anger. No one considers wrath according to the fear of him who can dwell with a consuming fire, who can dwell with everlasting flames. This God is everlasting and fearful. How can he be a refuge for me and for you, for his church? It seems impossible, and the answer isn't with us. It's not in this world. It's not in our leaders. Moses is gone. Who's the intercessor? Let's step back for a moment. And remember Moses, writing this psalm, writing this psalm reflecting on his own life, certainly, but upon the life of all of Israel. Because this psalm is in this book, not just because it reflected Moses or Israel at that time, but Israel all through the centuries. All through the centuries, Israel sang this psalm for generations. It was a prayer. 
Moses said, you have been our God, our refuge from generation to generation. But at that time, you'll notice, they hadn't had successive generations since the founding of Israel. The first generation was still dying out in the wilderness. So what is this? You have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's a prayer. It's an intercessory prayer that Moses is praying and that Israel sang. Through the conquest, through the times of the judges, they prayed with the man of God, establish the work of our hands. Through the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon, and into the divided kingdom, they kept up the refrain, you have set our iniquities before you. They wept and sang it while exiled in Babylon. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. They sang it for, th- for the long 400 years of prophetic silence. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. They prayed it all the way to the very moment that Jesus of Nazareth joined his human voice with ours. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Little did they know. The hearers who heard Jesus singing this psalm with them, little did they know at the time, but that prayer had finally been prayed effectively. Here in the flesh was the man of God, the covenant-keeping man, the covenant-keeping God, who returns the children of man to dust and now returns to them embodied in the likeness of the same. Here is your God. Here is your refuge. Here is that leader who will not break covenant. Here he is, your refuge in all generations. Interceding for them as he sings this psalm. And as we come to our last point this morning, I wonder what you would place in that little blank in your bulletin. Our God is everlasting, our God is fearful, but our God is also an interceding God. Our God is an interceding God. Who is the principal psalm singer? It's Jesus. Jesus is the principal psalm singer. And what we have at the end of Psalm 90, verses 12 and onwards, are a series of petitions. A series of petitions that, although at first glance may seem disconnected, fit together quite plainly. Who is he who makes these petitions? This principal psalm singer. It is Christ. It is Christ our mediator. Can his prayer fail? Prayers of Moses may have failed. Your prayers fail. My prayers fail. But his cannot fail. This is as much a prayer of this man of God as it is the God of men. For in Christ this psalm becomes positively a divine prayer of intercession, more than just supplication. Moses asked for these things, but Jesus prayed them to accomplish them. Let's read then verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. I just want you to read these Considering that Jesus is the one who says, who prays them principally. Consider them, these petitions, as intercessory petitions. Read them with me. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. 
Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He is the interceding God. And that, that is how the everlasting fearful God becomes our refuge by interceding for us. By not presenting himself as an impenetrable fortress, but by opening the door in Jesus Christ. There are three ways in which he intercedes for us that I want to bring out from these, from these verses. In the first two verses, verse 12 and 13, I want to show you how he intercedes savingly. He intercedes savingly. Verse 12, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. In Hebrew, the word teach is not of that variety that is principally about instruction or about purity of doctrine or about a method of teaching. Teaching is perhaps the best word for it here in English, but what it has in mind is more that experiential knowing that comes through practice. In fact, the word at root is know. Know. The same word that was used when Jesus looked down, for it was him upon his people in Egypt. And it says in the book of Exodus that God saw and God knew. Teach us to number our days. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. And now he prays, O God, teach them that they are dust. In this way, he's pleading for our life. He's pleading for our life. For it says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is a difficult concept to communicate. But what's happening in this verse 12 is the suggestion of God himself knowing our frame in such an experiential way that by his incarnation he teaches us. It is his incarnation that teaches us that we are dust. And furthermore, in verse 12 at the end there, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He not only knows our frame, that we're dust, but he knows our foolish hearts. And as he's praying, he's praying and interceding for us, give them a heart of wisdom. I know they're a nation of rebels. I know they can't sustain themselves. I know they haven't got a single guarantee in this life. And I'm praying, Father, that you would give them that heart of wisdom, that heart of wisdom that is mine, that heart of wisdom that fashioned the mountains, that heart of wisdom and of love that came down from the throne to become like them. It's a petition that we might have a heart of wisdom. And so in this verse, the all-wise creator is petitioning for our salvation to be accomplished. Give them a new heart, O oh Father. Give them a new heart. But in verse 13, return, O oh Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. In this petition, we see the first instance in this psalm of the I am, of the name, the covenant name of God. The rest of the psalm has had recourse to the Lord, Adonai. The generic name for the creator of heaven and earth. The one that all the nations recognize. They know in their hearts there's a God. They know in their hearts he's everlasting. They know in their hearts he's to be feared. But here, return, O Lord, our covenant-keeping God. And Christ is praying this intercessory petition. He's saying, return, O covenant-keeping God, as he stands before his people, the intercessor, the one who has returned to them. Instead of saying, return to dust, he prays, return. He is the return. He is the pity. 
Do you remember the first time that God's covenant name was declared? The first time Moses heard that name was in the presence of the burning bush. The burning bush that represents the church where God is in the midst of her. She shall never be moved. God is in the midst of her. This prayer incorporating the covenant name is a specific call for both justice and mercy. A call for justice because in returning the I am must visit wrath upon sin. And yet, and yet in mercy, in mercy because in pity, the I am accepts the sacrifice of his beloved servant in our place. Christ was the first instance in all of human experience in which the divine being dwelt with man and man was not consumed. And that was what he strove to accomplish. That was the accomplishment of his petition, his sacrifice. Return, O Lord, have pity. There it is on the cross. But thirdly, I'm sec- uh, secondly then, Verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. In this, Christ is petitioning as our good shepherd for daily grace. He says, I know they're in this wilderness... I'm here with them. Give them the grace they need. That that grace that satisfies. You're weak, O people of Israel. You're weak, but here is the grace you need. Today, today, when you need it most. The good shepherd petitions for our daily grace. And then in verse 15, make us glad. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Christ is praying in intercessory prayer as high sovereign. He's petitioning specifically for restraint against evil. And this teaches us again that he is indeed in control. Even as the reigning Christ, he is in control. Of all the pain and suffering and affliction that we face in this world, he is even in control. He is even in control when we sin. Although he is not the author of sin, he knows how to shift all things for his good, for our good and his glory. For he does not afflict us from his heart, Jeremiah says in Lamentations. Finally then, verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. And he repeats it, just like he repeated the stroke against the rock. And the rock was Christ. Establish the work of our hands. Don't establish our sins. Don't remember our sins, O God. You set them before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Don't establish those, Lord. Establish the work of our hands. Establish our faith, O God. In here, in these last verses, the king of glory is petitioning that we would see his glory. Let your work be shown to your servants. What is the great work of God? The great work of God is not creation. The great work of God is not his justice. We call that his strange work. The great work of God is his mercy is his salvation in Christ on the cross. Show us your work, Christ is praying. Show us your work, O Lord. He is literally praying for his own crucifixion. For these people who are rejecting him, who are saying, we don't want any other king but Caesar. These people who spit in his face, When the day before they were waving palm branches. These leaders of Israel who say one day, we know you are a great teacher. And the next day say, save yourself. Oh God, show your work. 
Show your work to your servants. Show your work. Show me. Show the crucified Christ. He wants us to see his glory. That's what he prayed. What was Moses' chief desire? At the height of his friendship with God, let me see your glory. What was Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the moment before he's about to be betrayed and crucified and deserted by those whom he came to die for? Lord, I desire that they also who you have given me may see my glory, to be with me where I am and to see my glory that you have given me. For indeed the Apostle John, the Apostle John of all the apostles who saw Christ best, In his ministry, transfigured, crucified, risen, ascended, and then glorified, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. Not the children of Adam, children of man, but God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. Do you realize that what Christ is praying in this psalm, Psalm 90 at the end there, let your work be shown to your servants. He's not only asking for his own crucifixion to save his people from their sins. He's asking that we might be changed. And that he might lead us, like Joshua, into the promised land in conquest against all the sin that harbors there against every single sin that would drive us out, to lead the charge and be victorious. Finally then, verse 17, not only that we might see his glory, but that we might be established in our faith. The architect of salvation himself petitions in our flesh for the establishment of our faith by his grace. You, You are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not sinful works, not futile works, not for monuments that crumble in the wilderness. You are created to stand. You are created to stand before the Almighty God, to be established in righteousness. You are created to redound in praise to the works of His glory. You are made to reflect the image of His Son. You were made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You weren't made for sin. You weren't made to wander forever. You were made for a refuge. You were made for a home for Christ himself. So consider him so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. And this lastly should inspire us to confidence. This calls for our confidence. It it compels our confidence to take refuge in our interceding Savior. Because only Christ is strong enough to dwell with everlasting burnings. Only Christ is wise enough to make sense of evil years and daily trouble. Only Christ is glorious enough to establish our faith, yours and mine, and to keep us from stumbling. God's salvation is our refuge. Malachi 3.6 reads this way. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. And the verse that I would like us to carve on our hearts today is from the book of Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday and today and forever. This last point may be perhaps the most important for us to hear this February morning, this congregation. In the same context in the book of Hebrews, the preceding verse to Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, our refuge, everlasting, fearful, interceding in that same context The preceding verse has this to say concerning the leaders of the church. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he adds, Jesus Christ is the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. Imitate their faith, notice, not their sin, because we all stumble in various ways. Consider the outcome of their faith. Consider also the outcome of their sin. Consider their conduct, not because it was perfect, but because the word of God they proclaimed is perfect. Remember them, not because they were perfect men, but because they proclaimed to you a perfect Christ, an unchanging Christ, a perfect intercessor who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, our refuge in all generations, whose grace alone establishes our faith. Let's pray. Lord God, our creator, upholder, proprietor of all things, we cannot escape from your presence or control, nor do we desire to do so. Our, priv our privilege is to be under the agency of omnipotence, righteousness, wisdom, patience, mercy, and grace. You are love with more than parental affection. We admire your heart, adore your wisdom, stand in awe of your power, abase ourselves before your purity. It is the discovery of your goodness alone that can banish our fear, allure us into your presence, help us to, do, to bewail and confess our sins. When we review our past guilt and are conscious of our present unworthiness, we tremble to come to thee. We whose foundation is in the dust, we who have condemned thy goodness, defied thy power, and trampled upon your love, rendered ourselves unworthy of life and worthy of eternal death. But our help cannot spring from any cause in ourselves. And so we pray as we know we can but destroy ourselves, that you would give us that help in the one who is mighty. For there is mercy with you and exceeding riches in the kindness of Jesus Christ. May we always feel our need of him. Let your restored joy be our strength. May it keep us from lusting after the world. Bear up heart and mind in loss and comforts. Enliven us in the valley of death. Work in us the image of the heavenly and give us to enjoy the first fruits of spirituality such as angels and departed saints know. God keep us. Christ keep us now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.